Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy. And I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show today on February 12th, 2015. Ronaldo, since the last time we talked, a lot has changed in the politi- political economy and lots to talk about in Europe. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, specifically about Russia and the Ukraine situation. Is that where you'd like to start? Yeah, I guess we might as well. Um, because it's such a hot story on so many levels, it's being covered by the media. It's being covered uh, poorly by the media, I might add. It's being covered in, like the media usually does, sort of like a racehorse kind of situation, instead of looking thoughtfully at what's really going on in, in Ukraine. My concern is that the the issues in Ukraine are not being well addressed by the allies. And by the allies, they mean loosely the NATO allies. So you've got Germany, Merkel, and you've got France, Hollande, basically blocking the U.S. president's desire to arm the, the Ukrainians. And I think that there's a great push in the Congress to arm the Ukrainians. Uh, and I know Matt, you and I have talked about this, and I, one of the reasons I'm for arming the Ukrainians is the same reason I'm for arming the Peshmerga in, in Iraq. If you've got local fighters on the ground who are willing to die to save their own villages, you've got to be willing to give them something to defend themselves with. I'm, I, I hearken back to the American Revolutionary War. Had it not been for France helping us to get arms, we would have not survived as a young state, a nation. Um, and, and that isn't to say France sent a lot of soldiers or sailors, because they didn't. But the idea that in a modern world, a, a, a dictator like Putin, who's a kleptocrat, I mean, he's, he steals everything he can touch. He's clearly, he'd like to think of himself as a modern day czar. He is engaging in very similar tactics to what Hitler did in the 30s with Neville Chamberlain and the whole appeasement crisis. And the thought was, if we, let, we just let Hitler take a little more, then he'll stop being greedy when the exact opposite was true. I think for Russia, when they got away with the Crimea thing, and he saw his, his poll ratings shoot up. I think it emboldened Putin to point where now he's decided he wants most of eastern Ukraine. I was, I was saddened that on the same night where they were negotiating the newest ceasefire, which, by the way, the last one, which was negotiated just a few weeks ago, um, didn't hold up for more than five minutes. I mean, Putin started rolling in more tanks and more Russian soldiers. Now, people have to remember there's Russian soldiers on the ground there, not just a huge amount of Russian armament. So you've got men with squirrels pea shooters trying to stop tank Russian tanks and they can't do it and on the very night when Putin is theoretically negotiating the new ceasefire he rolls 40 or 50 more tanks across the border I can't I mean, they can even count how many um, the armed personnel carriers and MRAP type vehicles so he's further putting huge armaments into Ukraine which they can't possibly defend against because they don't even have simple anti-tank weapons so to me like the Peshmerga in, who are fighting our battle in Syria the Ukrainians are willing to take on this level of aggression if we will just give them 
adequate armaments. I'm not saying we should give them tactical nuclear weapons. I think that's going too far. But I would like to see a local population on the border of the former Soviet Union, i.e. the Ukrainians, stop Putin using conventional weapons because they want to fight for their homeland than having this thing default to the point where we end up having to defend a NATO ally because Putin's greed continues to grow. Last point. I believe that Putin is in far more financial problems than the, the press is reporting. I think by the middle or end of the next Russian winter, he's going to be in falling numbers unless we do stupid things to prop him up. And one of the dumb things we can do is let him roll across another country so that he can appeal to his own nationalistic fervor. So those are my concerns. I hope that um, they're not well taken, but I think they are. And if we don't help the Ukrainians pretty soon, they're not going to be able to hold out against that massive Russian armament. Yeah, my, my thoughts are, we talked about this before the show, a little different. Um, you know, I see that the, the situation with Hitler as a, a different analogy just because this this crisis is is different in that it's a little more complex. Hitler was had a blitzkrieg, and that was a, a, an aggressive land grab and invasion with overwhelming force. Putin's doing this weird cat-and-mouse hide-and-go-seek game where he says one thing and does another, uh, where he's not actually invading eastern ukraine he's he's taking chunks of it and leaving what he calls a or claiming that it's not russian soldiers obviously there are many russian soldiers deeply involved but it's not an invasion by the russian army per se well it is though but see that's that's not true that, that those are russians that are fighting there and they're using russian military weapons i think the ukrainians left to their own devices would be able to mop this whole thing up pretty quickly. They were for a while, right? And then yeah. he started bolstering his forces. Well, that's what he did. He sent in more Russian troops and he sent in more Russian tanks. And one of the reasons why I want to see the Ukrainians stop this crazy man is because people don't know. This guy's, this guy's right operating in a very, very sick, dark place. Yeah. If, the, if the little people on the ground can't stop him, he will be emboldened to think the bigger people, i.e. NATO, will be less likely to do so for fear of attack or nuclear weapon exchange. So what I want to do is I want to stop and nip this thing in the bud so that he realizes that he can't take those countries that he wants. And if he does, he'll end up with a tremendous amount of long-term instability. Look what happened to him, for example, when, uh, with, 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 with what he tried to do with uh, the, the Muslim populations of a couple of border countries, right? And so he's, he's ended up with, with, with basically terrorism on Russian soil having nothing to do with the clash of religions and cultures and having everything to do with where he has placed his troops and how he's trying to suppress them. Sure. So my feeling is that there's no question he's not a president. He is a czar. He's a, a guy who needs to be stopped. And, I, and, and if people on the ground in, in Europe are willing to stop him to save their own villages, I say we've got to give him the arms to do it, just like I think we should be arming the Peshmerga. And the reason we don't do that is because we refer to the Turks. We don't anger the Turks. Well, we are arming the Peshmerga in, in Iraq. Really. In Iraq, where they are basically our fighting force. A little bit. We, we're not. We haven't given them anywhere near the kind of weaponry they've asked for. And right. if you, I mean, they've, they've been on American television pleading for weapons because they're ba again they're fighting with with six shooters. They're, they're, like they have Kalashnikov rifles and then M16s, but they don't have anti-tank weapons. They don't have the kind of stuff you need to they stop want, them. They want any aircraft weapons though. And those are pretty dangerous in the wrong hands. And well, you don't know who you're dropping them off. You know, I guess I don't think they need any aircraft weapons because the, but that's what they're asking for. That's what the Peshmerga situation is, right? I mean, they're asking. No, for, no, no. They're asking for stuff on the ground more than they're asking for heavier artillery. They're asking for anti-tank and anti-personnel carriers. They're asking for stuff like that. No, there, there is no ISIS Air Force, so you don't have to give them. No, but the, okay, so I was actually thinking of the Syrian uh, Free Army. Who was the Syrian Free Army is different. The Syrian Free right. Army is a very, very different thing. And the reason they're asking for it is the damage being done to the Syrian Free Army is being done from the air. Right. And, and since the, U, the U.S. 
and the Allies have refused to create a no-fly zone, which I don't understand that, by the way. We've, we've declared no-fly zones before. If we said no more airplanes over Syria, there wouldn't be any airplanes flying over Syria. And I think that would do more to weaken the Assad government than anything else. Why we haven't done that, I do not know. But to me, that's a safer strategy because you can take those airplanes out of the sky pretty easily by just declaring don't fly. And, and the few that do are going to get shot down. I think that's a very, much safer tactic than giving anti-aircraft weapons to the, the Free Syrian Army. The situation in Syria is a total mess. It's a nightmare. Yes. It, again, uh, I, but you know, it, part of it is because we're so conflicted politically in this country. Right. Well, it's also where the situation is hard because which side are you choosing? And now that's spiraled out of control, you're basically choosing either ISIS or Assad. No, and, and no, no. I think I think if you stop, if you say there's a no-fly zone, you're you're clearly choosing against the forces of Assad. Now, ISIS benefits in some senses, but if you notice that the 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 Assyrian army, the Syrian air force, is targeting the moderates, the moderates that we're for, right. they're not targeting ISIS. Right. I mean, so we're, no, you know, who's targeting ISIS is Jordan and the U.S. And of those, 80% of the flights are still U.S. flights. 20% are Jordan and everybody else. By the way, did you notice that the I think it was the United Arab Emirates just went back into the fray? Yeah. And the reason they did is they pulled out when they said the Americans weren't giving us enough protection in the event one of our pilots went down, and the right. U.S. moved helicopters and rescue teams to the front lines just last week, right. and the UAE said, okay, we'll start flying again. So I think they're trying, to, they're trying to protect the Jordanians and the and the Arab states who are willing to fight ISIS. I feel it's extremely important that we arm the Peshmerga, and I believe we should have declared and still should declare a no-fly zone in Syria. Back to Russia real quick. I think that one thing that Russian what, – what Putin's looking for politically is a really solid case to make to his people about the reasons to keep the war going. I mean, he's popular, yes. He, the, the national fervor is great. I think one of the concerns of the Europeans is not to give them something firm to press against. And that's the thing is Ukraine, they're, they're, he's not currently rolling tanks to the capital of Ukraine. He's looking at the situation and, and doing his, his kind of covert invasion thing that he's done in a bunch of other places. Yeah, but if you look at, look at the map of Ukraine, and, and you start with what he did in Crimea, which he got away with clean as a whistle, and that's what really emboldened him in eastern Ukraine. Now, if you look at yeah. eastern Ukraine, this whole thing started with a quarter... It was only about 50 miles wide. It's now like a couple of hundred miles wide. So what he's doing is slowly destabilizing all of eastern Ukraine. Yeah. And and, and so I do think he, he's pushing his tanks as far as they can go with as much support as he has to give them in terms of manpower. When, when Russian soldiers start reappearing in body bags back in Russia, and when the next Russian winter crushes the Russians because they're going to be so hard off economically... I think Putin's going to see his 78%, whatever, 75% approval rating start to plummet. Right now, he's using a, a no-casualty scenario. He's got nothing to lose because he's putting his Russian men inside of tanks that can't be shot. So no body bags are going back. People are dying level. on the so-called rebel side, which is the right. Russian-backed, I mean, the Russian-backed military. I mean, the Russian-backed forces inside of Ukraine. Right, but those are ground soldiers of Ukraine, the Ukrainian, Eastern Ukrainians, and, and there's not many of them. I'm talking about the Russians who are who are driving those tanks, who are driving right. those. They're not dying yet. No. And your point is that they should be if we're gonna if he's gonna pay a price for what he's, he's up to. He, because right now he's he's Trump. Remember, he has no free press in Russia. He doesn't have a free business culture. So there's got nobody's nobody's gonna complain unless something starts happening to their sons and daughters, in this case, sons in the military. Yeah. When you combine. 
Remember, this is the guy who also pulled out of I mean, this country pulled out of Afghanistan. I mean, that's an escalation strategy, though. I mean, what you're saying is that we need to continue. We need to build this war up between Ukraine. No, and no, I'm saying we need to arm the Ukrainians to be able to defend eastern Ukraine. That's very different than building the war. Up. But it, my it hope is hurt for him as a war strategy. Well, because if if we because what we're doing is we're giving him victory with no cost. He's getting the victory. He's getting the propaganda gain he wants. He's pushing back the Ukrainian government. He's destabilizing the country. And it's costing him nothing because not even any Russians are dying from it. And and the amount of military equipment he's got there is bogus from his arsenal. So I, I just think it's like you know I'm not a, and I don't I'm a peacenik basically. I don't believe in war, but I do yeah. believe that it, for example, if if, if 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 Mexico were to invade San Diego, I'd say arm the San Diegans before I would be willing to talk about a larger conflagration. Right. Okay. And 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 I don't think it's wrong to say. Than a, that in a war of national defense, which clearly Ukraine is, mm-hmm. for third parties to arm the defenders of their own villages. Notice I didn't say nation. I'm, I'm only talking about villages here. I'm talking about local places. If we don't give those people the arms they need to defend themselves, they will always be victimized by the tyrant. And that's exactly what was happening to ISIS. We finally got the Peshmerga to agree to fight, and that was a long battle. They're fighting and they're dying over in Syria. And we're still not arming them properly because they can't stop, you know, bigger artillery, heavier armaments with with the rifles. And I I think that's really what it comes down to. You can't expect the Ukrainians to stand off against a tyrant like this with rifles, pea shooters in effect, when he's rolling tank after tank after tank. He's got way too much heavy weaponry there. I mean, it's, it's a problem like you identified at the beginning, which is that the Europeans, if they're not willing to actually join a coalition and stop the Russian invasion of Ukraine if they're going to if they're not going to go all in an effort that would be a half measure giving them defensive weapons and drones like we're talking about is I think it's an escalation pure and simple I mean well then why not why not why not why not let them just roll over all of Ukraine and then I don't don't think that's what he's trying to do I don't think that's his goal he keeps taking more territory yeah but it's very slow I mean slow because he's doing it no he's doing it because he's trying to avoid casualties so we're giving him a, 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 a casualty-free war of aggression. He already took all of Crimea, which isn't even contiguous to Russia. He's now knocking off all of eastern Ukraine. And what I'm saying to you is if, if, if the Ukrainians were capable of fighting and want to fight him and don't stop him, watch the Baltics. Because he will say NATO is a, is a toothless tiger. And then you've got a real risk that you have a NATO defense requirement. And that requirement could lead to use of tactical nuclear weapons. So I'm saying if you can stop this guy with, with anti-personnel carriers, anti-tank weapons, let's do it on the ground with people who want to fight. They're not going to fight Russia on the other border states as vigorously as apparently the Ukrainians are willing to. So that's why I'm all for giving them a, a fair chance. Yeah, I mean, he, he hasn't tested the NATO resolve yet, and NATO claims they're putting together forces. But, you know, I think it's a very delicate situation, and that's the biggest concern. Is it's clearly delicate situation. When, when escalation is the scary part, because I don't think it's escalation when worse. You, no, I don't think it's escalation. Might work. I don't think it's escalation when you arm one side who's been beat up by the other side. If you walked into a schoolyard, and you saw five bullies beating the crap out of a young kid, yeah, I'm with you. is it escalation to call a cop? No, that's, that's calling the police would be bringing in an outside party, but telling that kid to hit him back, maybe... Maybe no, I'd say that's a good technique. I'd say give the, kid a, give, the, give the kid a billy club and see what he can do, not a six-gun. In other words, if you don't arm a weak, defenseless population, they will be run over by tyrants. And by the way, I hope, you know what? I, hope that, I hope that they aren't run over by tyrants, but I think that he's under other pressures besides just Ukraine. We'll, like I said. But, I mean, but you know what? Okay, one more point. 
One of the reasons I'm so concerned about this is, as everybody knows who listens to this show, I really believe that as climate change continues to deteriorate global conditions, yeah. you're going to see more warlords. So to me, ISIS is just a bunch of warlords, okay? What, what, what Putin is doing is bringing back the kind of aggression that gives rise to destabilization, yeah. which gives rise to warlords. So what I'm trying to say is, look, if we're going to try and stabilize global populations, when some population, which is defenseless, is willing to stand up against the bully, I'm not saying we should go to the rescue with troops on the ground. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even saying that we should necessarily uh, use U.S. military overflights. I'm just saying let them have an adequate defense. And in this case, it's as simple as an anti-tank weapon. It's that simple. And it's pretty, pretty basic. If you wait till this guy gets away with it, I think you're going to see an escalation, both in his greed and for his, his national standing in the polls at home. You're going to see him be more aggressive with other countries, and then I think that's going to lead to a much worse case. And I do believe it's like Neville Chamberlain. I think it's exactly like we will have peace in our times as Hitler's gobbling up Europe. That's what Putin's doing. It's a very it's a powder keg right now too, and it's and I think that one wrong move could be very very bad. And I believe the wrong move is not arming the Ukrainians. And but also the sanctions are hurting him deeply. So I think that you know this this could be his last gasp at justifying himself. We'll see. I think that we have to come back and visit it. But yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, well, you know what? Okay, what I like about this conversation, though, Matt, is I think it's a thoughtful conversation about a very difficult issue. Yeah. And I can hear your point of view, and I can see the wisdom of it. Hope you can hear mine. That, definitely. But but if we don't have a serious conversation in the body politic in the United States about these kinds of issues, I don't think we're ever going to be able to see ourselves um, dealing with the types of global crises that this show talks about most frequently. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think your point about how we're going to manage the international order of the world in an increasingly resource-constrained and warmer planet is really important, especially because it's going to involve Russia so right. directly for so long. But uh, let's move on because that, that was really useful. I think that's great. And let's definitely keep coming back to that one. Another point you had made about the Eurozone and the European economy in general was, you know, the Germans, the, the possibility of a Greek exit and the possibility of a UK exit out of the, uh, the common market. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. One of the things that I think we should do on the show frequently is we should help people understand the meaning behind the words that the press throws around casually. So people have heard the word uh, Grexit to refer to the Greeks exiting the Eurozone monetary union. So if the Greeks were to exit, Grexit means they would stop using euros and they would start using drachma again, which is something I've advocated on the show for many months. It's probably better for Greece and, frankly, would probably be a good thing for the European Union. The British exit, or what's called Brexit, the British exit, is a very different issue. And that's why I want people to focus on it from a different perspective. What the British are talking about doing is not leaving the Union, because the monetary Union, because they never joined it. They, they have their own uh, British pound, as you know, and they never took up the euro. But they are a member of the common market. They're a member of the common – and that common market, <coughs> which is comprised of basically three heavyweights at the top, Britain, France, Germany, mostly Germany. Those three heavyweights have had a balancing effect on the Union for all these years. If the British vote in a little over a year to exit the British – exit would be not of the monetary union, which is what the Greeks talked about. It would be an exit of the entire common market. So I what think is it, talk a little bit more about the common market. What does that mean uh, in terms of actual policy? Well, there's 24 countries that have, that have common borders and common policies on some of the most intractable issues. Sometimes having a common market actually backfires. You saw a case this week where 300 people at least died trying to reach the shores of Italy okay, from, I believe, Libya. Now, one of the reasons that, that many died this week is because 
the Italians, which used to have a policy to for um, basically to save as many people on the high seas, trying to reach Italy as possible, that policy, because it was burdening Italy so much financially, um, they submitted that to the European Union, and the European Union said, nope, let's let a bunch of people die, and maybe we'll keep them from coming in the boat in the first place. So that shift in policy we can directly identify has killed 300 people this week, or certainly some significant portion of 300, because more than 300 have died. And, and the idea that people will stop coming out of places like Libya or other places that are in, in, in incredible meltdown because they might die on the high seas begs the fact that they have a certain death if they stay home. So it's not like uh, Cubans who try to reach America because of the law that said if you touched American soil, you were free. And it's not like Cuba in the sense that they were going to die at home, although there was political repression. In places like Libya, these people are getting on these lifeboats, basically, starving to death to start with, having no idea of how they're going to get there, but knowing that there's a certain tragedy behind them and taking their chances. And what we now know is that policy the European Union adopted did not stop people from getting in the boats. Right. So, so the, com the common market is a general set of policies that are all governed, all the countries in the common market are governed. Yeah, by. and as a result, they have elimination of common tariffs. For those of you who travel, you know that they have a common passport. Um, and they have a variety of common policies so that you can trade freely without... Uh, it used to be, when I was much younger, before the Union, uh, the... Um, if you went between countries, you would uh, exchange one currency for another, but you had different taxing systems. You had, mm -hmm. you know, um, trade costs were very, very high. Um, if you were in Italy selling to France and Germany, you had two different sets of books you kept for that. I mean, it was, can you imagine if the United States, if every state had its own trade policy, its right. own export-import policies, its own taxing policies? It'd be just, it'd be a disaster. Right. And that's what Europe solved. Well, the British exit calls into question the survival of the Union. The Greek exit from the Monetary Union calls into question the likely survival of the Monetary Union, but I think the Monetary Union has to be reformed anyway. I think that the bigger, the bigger issue behind the Grexit, or the Greek exit, is the fact that the austerity program that Germany has been enforcing, and, and, and this is really Angela Merkel's game, she's got domestic pressures, and it comes from a kind of a Calvinist Lutheran belief that if you're going to party, you have to pay. Mm -hmm. Well, the Greeks party, so they're going to pay. And that's a really foolish policy because the Greeks party because they created a system in which the Greeks could party and not pay. Right. So now they're having to pay. But if you make them pay so bad for so long, 50% unemployment for a youth in Greece, at some point they go, you know what? This is not a good deal. And in Greece, people don't realize the recession never ended in Greece. Right. It hasn't even gotten much better. So they bring to power somebody who's saying, enough with this austerity stuff. Now, Everybody knows, at every serious level of economic thinking, austerity doesn't work. It's, it's a policy that has been totally shown to be incredibly destructive. Every place has tried. It hasn't even worked for Britain, frankly. So why does Merkel keep pushing it? Because of this tendency that the, the, Germans are, the national German audience is saying to her, be tough on the Greeks. I think that's crazy. They, they, what they're going to have to do is stop being so German. They're going to just have to get a little looser here and go, okay, what's the flexibility we need to demonstrate? I'll give you an example. I understand that the Prime Minister of Greece just offered to continue the repayments on the bailout debt, but he wants to set the principal and interest payments 30% lower. And the, Greek, and the Germans have turned him down cold. Wow. My idea would be, great, set it lower and have it run longer. I mean, you know, he didn't say I won't pay it back. He's right. saying reduce it to the point where I can I can rebuild the Greek economy. Once I start to build the Greek economy back, then I'll be in a better shape to pay you. It's like what we learned in this country. Austerity 
didn't get us out of the recession. It dug us in deeper. And then, and here we, of course, have the, the, the twin um, uh, sequestration mm -hmm. issues where we kept cutting ourselves and cutting ourselves. And it wasn't until the private sector could grow fast enough to cover the employees, I know we're going to touch on this later, that the public sector was firing. Right. <laughs> we got out of the mess. The private sector alone would have been out of the mess by 2009, beginning of 2010 at the latest. So I think that the, the Greek exit and the British exit, totally different things. But, but both, I think, stem from a, a, an inflexibility that Germany and France are not willing to build into the system in order to keep it alive. And if they don't, they're going to have a terrible problem. You know, in this country, Thomas Jefferson famously observed that if you didn't rewrite the Constitution every generation, it would probably end up being um, a futile exercise. And I think there's parts of that that's correct. I don't think Germany and Holland have to rewrite the basic documents of the European Union. But what they have to do is adapt a new flexibility to allow for the fact there are all forms of disagreement now within Europe. For example, Barcelona wants to secede from Spain. There are elements in Portugal that want to see Portugal leave the Union. So what, what, what Germany is doing by clamping down and forcing austerity down the throats of the poorest populations of the, of the Union, they're basically creating more instability. Yeah. And I think that's where it's coming apart. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I think we have to continue to watch that too because clearly what happens in Europe doesn't just stay in Europe. No. Um, uh, so the, the other major trading par partner of the U.S. you wanted to talk about was Canada. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some of the Nordic countries that are now going below zero interest for the first time, I think, since in memory, actually. Um, Sweden, yeah. Yeah, Sweden. Um, let's talk about Canada. Uh, we often ignore Canada at our peril. We always think of them as our little brother. We don't really pay attention to them. We should, because it's an enormous economy. It's an incredibly stable country. It had the, the most... Um, uh, it had the, the, the strongest independent banking system in the entire industrial world going through the recession, which is why the governor of the Bank of Canada ended up being the governor of the Bank of England. Mm. Um, and, and so we got to give the Canadians a lot of credit. It's, a, it's an economy characterized by services and manufacturing. And why I'm pointing this out is the Saudis will win the battle of clamping down on tar sands development. Uh, tar sands cannot be developed at the price of even today. Oil's back up to around $54 a barrel at West Texas Intermediate, I think 57 in Brent. Uh, and the reason why the Canadians... Uh, or don't have the same kind of problem that people think they might because of the tar sands is I think oil is maybe 3% of the Canadian economy uh, and what it did is it propped up uh, Harper the very conservative Prime Minister's government because he had all this newfound wealth in fact the Canadian budget I don't think was delivered on time this year because they're trying to figure that 3% hmm. but that's only 3% 97% is still where it always was in Montreal and Toronto and the other provinces of Vancouver that are very strong and balanced economies. It's only this chunk of tar sands up in the Manitoba, Alberta area where, you, where you've had a kind of a weird you know, oil patch phenomenon that's not coming to an end. And that's a good thing, I think it's coming to an end. The Saudis will win that. Two issues that will come out of that clearly is why the Republican Congress has made the Keystone Pipeline the Keystone XL pipeline, a big factor when all of the oil that goes down that pipeline from Canada will go to refineries in the Gulf Coast and Gulf Coast, and every single drop of oil has to go outside the country. So it can't possibly help the United States in terms of domestic consumption. All it can do is inflate profits for the refineries, who 
basically it had undue influence over the American government who want to see that pipeline so the refiners can keep pumping even though Americans are using less petroleum. So I, I find that they, that they chose to make that the first veto is kind of stunning because it's kind of crazy. And there's no win there for any American politician. Yeah. But I do think it also raises the question, if they don't get the XL pipeline, which they won't because both of them going to veto, and I don't think they can override, uh, will the Canadians still go forward with building uh, the uh, pipeline to Vancouver? And that pipeline is premised on the theory that the tar sands would continue producing and they have so much oil that they need to get it out in two places. Mm. Well, there'll be a lot less production, but they won't have Keystone to pump it to the western refineries down in, in the Gulf Coast. What will they do with that pipeline that's really aimed for Asia? Will that pipeline go forward? And if so, what will it carry if it doesn't carry tar sand oil? Or are they betting that they'll build the pipeline, it'll take a few years, and by the time they're ready to fill it up, the price of oil will bounce back? And I, I'm raising this because, as people who listen to the show know, I do not believe that oil is going to go back uh, to its historical highs. And the most I can see it bouncing back is the $75 a barrel. And I don't think the pipeline's economic at that price. And I don't know that it's going to get to $75. I'm not saying $75. I'm saying that's the highest I see it going. So if it's at 53 54 right now, you know, I can make a case it'll go to 60 65 conceivably if a lot of gimmicking goes along. But even that... Hard to see how that's going to happen. If the Americans continue to reduce their consumption of oil, uh, Asians will, on a per capita basis, start to reduce consumption. They have to because Beijing's air is unbreathable. Uh, you're going to see, and it's funny that we're sitting here today in 2015. In, in 2005, people would have told you the Prius was going to be a failure as a car because no one would pay for that kind of gas mileage. And, of course, probably the biggest success story, over a million on the roads. Uh, and now it's led to the electric car phenomenon, which is sweeping California and soon, I think, will be sweeping the, the world. Yeah. And whether those electric cars are powered by batteries or hydrogen is irrelevant. They're going to be electric cars either way. So I, I think that the, um, you know, it's like I drive my new Volt and I still haven't put the gas. I mean, it still hasn't used any gas. <laughs> Every day I just plug it in at night and for pennies a mile, as opposed to, you know, pennies equivalent to, to what I paid the gas pump, it's always topped off. And I come back to my car in the morning, and I unplug it, and I drive, and my average miles keep going up and up and up because I'm not buying any gas. Well, I'm just one guy driving a Volt. But if you take all the guys driving Priuses, if you take all the guys driving Teslas, all the guys driving Volts, all the women who have picked um, the Leaf, all the men who picked uh, other cars that are the Hyundai hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, all of us together are starting to have an appreciable dent on the oil consumption. And then when you add to that, that the manufacturers of cars realize that even with the price of oil where it is, they still have to bring you a car like that one right outside the window, the Fiat 500, that's going to get 40 miles to the gallon, which is what the Prius started with. So what we're doing is we're improving the average fuel economy of the entire U.S. fleet faster than anybody imagined, and we're showing the way to other countries how they can reduce oil consumption. That, to me, is a fundamental long-term change that works against the oil company's interests, and even though their political power is enormous, I believe you are seeing the beginning of the sunset of the oil industry dominance of the global economy. Yeah. Well, that's great. I hope that I hope that that's an accurate prediction. It seems like it is, given all the factors. Also, lots of new oil coming online when it's back up at $100 a barrel. They, those those they can turn the taps back on if it starts going up. Yeah. And by the way, I, 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 one of our frequent listeners is George Gate in this program. And uh, about two weeks ago, Jordan had a conversation in which I said, you know, 
uh, we got to stop short selling oil stocks because you can see the manipulation starting to build in the system. And they were going to come back up. Yeah. So we so fortunately we stopped buying, we stopped short selling and they did go back up a bit. But that isn't because I think there's a long term trend they're changing. It's just that the opportunity they, they were at the bottom. The upside was more likely than further drop in prices for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. And then and we had a little course correction. You know, if I had to look at it with a crystal ball, I would say that probably the realistic price of oil right now is in the fifty to fifty five dollar range. That's probably making a lot of sense. And I don't see that jumping to seventy five. And I also don't see it dropping to thirty five. Yeah. Well I want to talk more about the domestic US economy, but first a quick note for our listeners. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our work re- re- relies on people like the listeners of this show to join in and help support it. We have a $25 a month associate member level that I want to encourage you to sign up for, so please go to our website at worldbusiness.org and click on Become a Member on the right side of the page. Your support is essential to our work, and we deeply appreciate your help in keeping this project and this radio show uh, going. So on the domestic economy, Ronaldo, we got some good news uh, on uh, the jobs report, but a little bit of a confusing or downtick in consumer spending. What do you see uh, happening there? Well, uh, first of all, I think that the, the the jobs report has just month after month has just been fabulous, and and we are we're at a place now where you're starting to see real wage gains finally after you know what the seventies really. Yeah. Uh, I think that the the, the couple of key observations. One is that when the price of oil stays as low as it currently is, say $53, $54 a barrel, it unleashes a tremendous amount of disposable income to the least economically viable members of society, people who are at the poorest levels of society, because that dollar they don't put into their gas tank literally buys food. It literally buys basics. Uh, we've seen the restaurant numbers go up, with one notable exception, by the way. McDonald's is having an absolute huge crisis, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Um, so we, what we're seeing is a is a significant uptick in in the ability to go out to a fast, casual dining place, like, you know, something where you can spend. It, it doesn't have tablecloths. It's like it's like a lobster, uh, what do we call it? Red lobster. Red lobster, or it's like um, Applebee's, or it's uh, Chile's, you know. Um, it's Chipotle, for example, which is a you know to go kind of thing, and and what all those places are doing much much better because that's a treat that you can afford now that you didn't put into your gas tank. So you're going to see those restaurant numbers have been up significantly. Will continue to be up. I think you're going to see clothing, um, particularly for the, the, the across the spectrum, but for the middle class and down, disproportionately rising because uh, you now have the money to be able to buy that uh, suit to go to an interview. Uh, and you have the ability to buy that pair of pants that you need because you wore it out or that new dress for work. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and on that level, remember that we now have, because we have Obamacare, we're about to enter an era where employees are no longer trap working for the same employer because to leave would cause them to lose their insurance. This is going to have a very, very major effect on, on wages, positive effect. And I think that you haven't begun to see it yet, nor have we begun to see the full impact of the drop in gasoline prices because people were in such deep debt, partially they're using the money to pay off some of the debt, which furthers up more spending in the future. And partially they're, they're, they're selectively using it to bring back a few, um, quote, luxury items, even though most people might not think that eating at Chili's or Applebee's is a luxury. Uh, for many people it is. Uh, and that's why I want to come back to McDonald's. So McDonald's is having this incredible, unbelievably bad 
quarter that just happened. The, the CEO has been fired on short notice, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that they're looking at, and there was an interesting article in the Atlantic Monthly just about this this, this last week. Um, the, the the ones that seem to be doing well are healthier fast food. So, for example, a Shake Shack is healthier than a McDonald's. Not much, but somewhat. The one that really is out here in the in the West is the Hobbit, where you can go in. You, so the Hobbit is a really interesting burger chain, but what it serves is you can get a really good salad, fresh lettuce, and, and they'll chop up a, a piece of barbecue chicken on top of it. And it's very delicious, and it's very, very fast, and it's very inexpensive. Hmm. And they just went public, huge underwriting, and their stock continues to move up. you got places like Chipotle, for example, which have been promoting that they're healthier, that they that, that, that their chickens are cage-free, and that they have this, this supply chain where they're trying to educate the farmers to give them food that they really want. So I think that what McDonald's has is this enormously big challenge. It's going to go from McFood to it has to morph into something that has meaning on the current uh, in, in society's current terms. In other words, if, if the reason you went to McDonald's during the recession is you couldn't afford anything else, and you got a Big Mac and a fry, you got more obese, but you also got your stomach full for a couple of bucks. That's not going to keep McDonald's going, and that's what the numbers are saying. So what is McDonald's going to do? I think McDonald's has to reinvent itself. It has to reinvent itself as a fast food chain that has many more alternatives than just more plastic food. In other words, it won't be enough to bring out a new imitation milkshake right? Okay, or a McRib. Right. They're going to actually have to do some food. Well, they're not laid out to do that. They don't have real kitchens. They have batteries of French fryers. They have grills. And so to turn that around from a point of view of how do you get people in is going to take a very interesting strategy. Um, I'm, I'm reminded that, um, that the McDonald's outside of Paris continues to do fine because they serve red wine. Huh. Okay. So um, is, is there going to be something where they decide, and by the way, Applebee's serves wine, you know, Chile serves wine, so, uh, and that's a higher margin sale. So are they going to be able to completely recreate themselves, not lose their traditional audience, but start to add items on the menu that are healthier, that they can promote as healthier and better? I think that there's a real opportunity for that. Interesting. But the way they're going right now, they're just going down. Well, you know, <laughs> it's it's a, it's an interesting problem, right? Because uh, poor people need good food choices, and they haven't had them for a long time. And I think that there's actually a change in consciousness in a lot of ways, too, where people are understanding how unhealthy McDonald's is and how unhealthy eating that much you know, preservatives and whatever else is in there, hormones and et cetera. Trans fats. And, and we just learned this week, great story, what we thought about cholesterol turns out not to be true. It turns out the cholesterol in eggs really isn't bad for you. It doesn't translate to blood cholesterol. But trans fat cholesterol does. Mm. Well, guess what? you got to be tough. a lot of trans fats. Yeah. So um, the whole idea of using hydrogenated palm oil because it's cheap and your tummy doesn't know the difference, but your arteries do, that's going to go away. Both because of the obesity epidemic and also because people are getting smarter about what's really killing them. Uh, and I think that the more people start using wearable technology, which I think is this huge thing that's going to happen. Apple's now, you know, Apple makes a habit of reinventing industries that have already failed as huge successes. Right. Okay. I mean, people forget that the, the smartphone was dead when they took it on, and now it's the, the iPhone. The tablet PC has uh, been around forever, but never no, done right. Yeah. Right. And now that they've got the watch, the iWatch, or no, actually they don't call it the iWatch, they call it the watch, the Apple Watch. That, to me, is the enshrinement 
of wearable technology having a huge potential effect. And watch for more forms of wearable technology in the future. I'm actually working on a couple of my own oh, yeah? Yeah, through the Chopra Foundation. Uh, but just go back to jobs report. I just want yeah. to give a tally. I think it's great we tell people. In 2014, which is now over, we added 3,116,000 jobs. This is the highest raw new jobs level creation since 1999. So we're now way above where we were pre-recession. Um, in, in January alone, purportedly the civilian labor force rose by 703,000. Now, 250,000 is considered a very good month. 700,000 is over the top. A lot of people coming back into the labor market because they see jobs as a possibility. Yeah, and I think that some of those people are people who are 60 years old and older, who are looking for additional supplemental income. Uh, Social Security is still under pressure from, from uh, many politicians. And I think that what you're going to see, particularly with the higher minimum wage, it now makes it worth your while to get out of bed and, or get off the couch. Right. And so I, I attribute the, the, the jobs gain in part to the minimum wage increases in so many cities. It took effect, interestingly enough, in January. Hmm. It's, it's a coincidence, but it's an interesting coincidence. Um, and, and I think, by the way, that, that higher minimum wage together with the reduction in oil bills at the, at the, at the pump and heating oil bills, particularly if you live in the, in the frozen northeast, which continues to get walloped, and Boston's got another snowstorm coming today. Those, that reduction of costs is going to be manifested as increasing retail sales over time, and that still is three-quarters of the U.S. economy, 77%. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and the uh, revisions of last year's numbers were also up, adding right. 147,000 more or pre than previously reported, which is also a good sign. And average hourly wages up 12 cents. That's a lot. Um, That's a lot. Quickly, I want to turn to a, a feature that we introduced a few months ago, the economic doomsday clock, which last month we had set at seven minutes to midnight. Right. What would you say the doomsday clock? Is it ticked forward? Is it ticked back? Same place. Hasn't gotten worse because XL pipeline is not a threat to the economy. It's not going to pass. Obama's going to veto it. No one really cares. There's no losers in that. There's no there's no economic ox that got gored there that's going to cause a problem. That's just all politics. That's silly politics, as we said earlier in the show. No, I think the issue really is that um, because no serious senior Republican, meaning Boehner, McConnell, and their ilk, they have not yet been willing to do something that the Tea Party right wing of their party wants them to do, which is to throw bombs in the middle of Congress and, you know, hold up the budget or hold up the debt ceiling. They're not threatening that at all. And so people are going, okay, well, maybe the Republicans are going to try to somehow govern, even if it's going to be a more conservative governance. Maybe this is going to work out. Um, I think that Obama introducing the war resolution is brilliant because it's a debate we need to have. We're going to have it for months now. And that's where there ought to be sides. There ought to be a liberal and a democratic side of that. There ought to be a conservative and a you know, progressive side of that. So I'm glad that we're going to have a real conversation about something as important as war and peace, finally. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that will keep the, the bloodlust of politics at a minimum. But as long as the bloodlust of politics is not affecting the economy adversely. Now, it's not helping. So, for example, if, if in the budget that Obama presented, the Republicans had to come back and say, well, you know what, we don't like a whole lot of stuff you said, uh, but we do like the idea of infrastructure spending, which used to be a Republican uh, litmus test, right? Republicans love infrastructure spending historically. I mean, think of the biggest Republican infrastructure spender was Dwight Eisenhower, right? And we, haven't had it, I mean, and, and, and we had it at a time when, when income taxes were 
in the high 70 percentiles, in fact, 80 percentiles. So I think that even though they, re they rejected some things which I thought were good, by the way, I think it's really good for Obama to tax offshore profits. Because if you don't, what you're doing is not only giving people the ability to go offshore, causing U.S. jobs to be lost to get cheaper production, and then you're further protecting their profits because you're not taxing them if they stay onshore with American workers. So I think it's, it's really good to tax offshore profits. I don't think the Republicans are going to let them do it. So, you know, if you do that, then I'd say that the clock would tick back to eight minutes. But we haven't got reconstruction spending. We haven't got infrastructure. We haven't got any meaningful tax policy even being discussed. So it doesn't get any better, but fortunately it doesn't get any worse. And uh, another piece on the domestic slash international front that's kind of becoming of the two is uh, Obama's visit to India. Uh, what do you see out of that uh, meeting with Modi? Yeah, well, I think, I think it's all plus. I mean, first of all, I think that India is the second biggest consumer market for our goods after China, and I would argue probably a bigger one because it's, it's, it's going to open up in new ways that China won't. Uh, I think that uh, you know people forget that the Indian middle class is larger than the entire population of the United States, and they have a middle class there. Uh, I think that the, um, the fits and starts of Indian democracy over the years since 1947 when they launched has been a story of conflict with the U.S., uh, for a very long period of time. And even when they called themselves a quote non-aligned nation, they weren't non-aligned. They were actually a, a, a balance weight, they felt, to American superiority. And so they kind of sided with the, the anti-U.S. movement. I think that Modi, and, and you know, we should observe that Modi just lost his first local election. He did lose um, control of the Delhi legislature, the city of Delhi. Um, but I think that's because the old money and interests of the Congress Party are more entrenched in Delhi than anywhere else. So I don't really see that as weakening his power. His off elections in the north actually came up favorably for Modi just a month earlier. So I think what's going on now is we have a situation where India is opening up in a new way under Modi. I think Modi, and I love the fact he ran on that, that his, his slogan was toilets before temples. Mm -hmm. Even though he's a holy man in his own eyes, he, he sees the need to do things for, for the Indian population that are very basic. So I'm seeing him as a vast new market for American goods. And that's important because so many of our markets are being reduced given the American dollar being so high. So you really have to find a place where American technology can leapfrog the, the, the increased value of the dollar. So you have developed markets that, that, that really are economically viable for American companies to be in. And, I, and if you're trading in U.S. dollars, it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult everywhere, including Europe, to sell stuff. But in India, the kinds of basic things they need Americans are still very good at supply. So I, I see India as a really great opportunity for the U.S. As, an, as, an, as a market we can export to. And equally important and more so, I think they're a great partner in Southeast Asia now because that type part of the world is in terrible, terrible turmoil. And I think the, the balancing act that's going on with China um, gets stronger if you have a viable India, particularly when you have a Japan. And we're not going to have time to go into Japan today, but you know, Japan's a basket case. Yeah. And and um, and you got you know this unbelievable craziness going on in, in some other parts of, of Southeast Asia, uh, you know I mean you, you can Thailand look at, you can look at Thailand you can look at Miramar you can look at a lot of places and, and, and Miramar is really interesting we have never talked about that yeah I mean, come back to that one come back to that one yeah anyway um, no that's really interesting and you know they had there was a tacit understanding or agreement about climate change between Modi and Obama. Yeah, and it was based on the fact that he'd already reached agreement with China. 
So, and by the way, when you put that agreement with Modi, the agreement with China, and the fact that China's got to do it because Beijing is not survivable much longer. I mean, you can't breathe. I mean, it's people there know it. it that's going to cause downward pressure on fossil fuels. has to. And there's real momentum going into Paris. I mean, I think that this is, if we're going to get an international climate treaty, the, the progress that's been made with China and India is a really good sign. You know, I'd say, I, I, I hope you're right, Matt. I'm, I'm less optimistic about it, getting a treaty, but I, what I am optimistic about is that China, for its own reasons, has to become more renewable energy-based. India, for its own, remember, India has vast resources of coal. It doesn't import its coal like China does. And yet they know they can't keep burning it. For their own reasons, they can't keep burning it. So I'm really optimistic about the fact that both China, as, the, as the West, particularly U.S., adopts increasingly efficient renewable energy standards, and we keep coming up with better, better widgets, the Chinese and the Indians will want to make them. So look what happened. We invented the technology in the, in the West for photovoltaic cells. They're made in China, virtually all, right? Because the Chinese can manufacture. So we got a benefit. We got cheap photovoltaic that now I can put on my roof at, at a cost that competes with the utility. Right. Well, I wouldn't have got that without China. Um, the same thing's true with wind. I mean, you know, so we had this 75% you know, drop in the cost of wind because the Indians, the Chinese, are building windmills cheaper than we can build. Well, that's a win. You know, I'm happy they're building windmills. I don't feel bad at all. What I'd like to see us do is I'd like to see us lead in the next generation of renewable energy, like fuel cells, uh, microgrids, um, uh, lithium-ion phosphate battery arrays, uh, probably flow batteries. I mean, there's a, I mean, we got to talk about this in some program. We got to start talking about renewable energy. But you know, and, and I'm looking for a, a renaissance in geothermal. I'm looking for the possibility of OTEC. Uh, which we know would work if we could get some country to get behind it. So there's a lot of things that we could do here in this country. And vertical wind is coming on. You know, People don't even realize that vertical wind exists, and it's almost finished its final stages of testing over in northern Europe. And, uh, and the, the Danes are testing that right now. And so it's an important time for us to recognize that vertical wind is about to happen, and that breaks open a completely new game, both in terms of where you can put these new windmills like you can put them on existing wind farming, which is great, and increase the yield from an existing piece of dirt. Hmm. And uh, so there's a lot going on. Well, the Chinese would be the likely people to make the vertical wind, or the Indians. And so they get a new manufacturing sector, which they want. We get to export the technology, so we're going to get money out of it ourselves. And we can use that to plow into more renewable energy resources. Um, clearly, the United States is not leading in electric cars just because we have Tesla. But, uh, you know, I don't think without Tesla you'd have seen the IBM 3, the B3. It's called the electric car. I sat in one a couple of days ago. Which one's that? The BMW. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's an IBM. Yeah. BMW. The BMW 3, it's called. Right. And it's an electric car. And it's made in a factory using all wind power. So exactly. Learn from their commercial. Okay. So, so would they have done that if there weren't a Tesla? I don't think so. Would they be doing that if they weren't afraid that they don't have a hydrogen vehicle? I don't think so. So I, I see this real sea change happening at the level of individual consumers that help governments fund themselves. Yeah. That kind of trade, I think, is really what's going to help us. Now, i got to say one thing real quickly. I'm not a proponent yet of the new trade bill that's being proposed that Obama wants blanket authority for because I don't think... The Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes. Uh, TPA. TPP. TPP, right. I don't think it's being done in the open. That scares me. I think that um, 
key provisions could adversely affect the American public, like if they basically adopt the American version of hide the fact we use GMOs when everybody mm -hmm. else in the world except Canada labels a GMO when it exists. Right. By the way, I want to put in a plug. So the young man, 26-year-old Taylor, who's walking across America, he left Santa Monica on January 5th. He's now in Phoenix, Arizona, and he's walking to ask, can we please know what's in the food we eat? He's asking that we label GMO products as having GMOs in them. I think it's a great thing for a young man to do to get his message out, and, and we support him through the academy, through a sister nonprofit called Omega Point Institute, and uh, I'm really happy that Taylor, as a 26-year-old man, decided that he could leave his girlfriend on the West Coast and walk across America. It's take him a year. Wow. And he's now in Phoenix, which is good because he's got the desert behind him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, where can people find out more about that? Uh, yeah. Go. Uh, uh, walk to Know is the name of walk it. Walk to Know. Yeah. But the, go to the OmegaPointInstitute.org website. You'll see the Walk to Know there. I think. Can you Google Walk to Know? I'm Maybe. Checking right now. Check right now. But I know Omega Point Institute. You'll see a section called Walk to Know. And there's even a map of you know his stops along the way. And there's a blog because uh, we equipped him with a little GoPro camera. Nice. So he's uploading little movies along the way. He's meeting with people. And he's getting a conversation going. It, it reminds me of what uh, Thomas Paine did as a pamphleteer back in the, in the Revolutionary War with Common Sense. He literally went from village to village handing out pamphlets. And what Taylor's doing is he's going from village to village talking about the right to know what's in our food, which you would think is so a basic right, you wouldn't have to walk across America to bring to bring attention to the fact that we don't have the right to know. Yeah, so if our listeners want to check that out, go to omegapointinstitute.org. Um, also, if you want more information about this or any of the other subjects we cover, if you have questions for us, please do email at info at worldbusiness.org. Uh, Ronaldo, is there anything else you want to talk about before we close? We we had talked about the gold market. Yeah, just I think it's I think it's really interesting too. Going about one is gold. I think it's interesting that gold's at a four-year low. Uh, fortunately, we've been telling people on this show for a long time not to buy gold, hold off buying. Turned out that continues to be good advice. We're in a deflationary uh, world uh, more than we're in an inflationary one. There are, you know incredibly dangerous potential international things that could happen which would cause fear and then price of gold to rise or spike on that. But I noticed in the gold statistics, which just hit a four-year low, that the amount of gold being sold, for example, into China and India for cosmetic jewelry, 18-karat gold, is up quite a bit. Where the decrease in gold buying has happened is by nation states. So uh, they're not buying gold in China, for example, or the people of China are not buying it. As a, as a counterweight to their questionable stock market manipulations because they're getting more confidence in their own stock market, as an example. Um, they, they're not buying it as a, as a counterweight to their overinflated real estate market because they're learning they're going to have to take the air out of that bubble and they're taking that air out now. By the way, I want to make a quick point about China in that regard. You know, I'm, I'm from an economics or economist point of view, I'm very much in favor of the fact that China is slowing its growth down to 6-7%. I think it's much more sustainable. Yeah. It gives them a chance to start letting air out of that balloon. They were going to hit the wall if they didn't. So yeah, it was great when China was pulling the global economy along at 8 to 10%, and now it's down to 6 7 But I mean, America would be happy to have a 35 to 4% growth rate. That'd be huge. Yeah, and I'm, I think we're going to do 3.2 to 3.4 this year. But can you imagine if we were getting 4.5 or 5.5? It would be hallelujah, Hollywood. So I'm, I'm really happy that the Chinese are slowing it down, and I wouldn't mind seeing it go to six, actually, from the current area around seven. 
Um, at the same time, India is continuing to grow at about the same pace it did the last two years. So I think India will stay at its current pace and maybe even start lifting above that pace by the end of this year. But gold, which people buy only for one of two reasons, fear of inflation, which clearly the opposite is true now. That's why it's at a four-year low. Or fear of instability, geographic instability. Uh, my guess is the, um, the Russian government is probably selling gold more than they're buying it right now. They can't afford to hold it. Uh, and I think other people who see them hold themselves holding gold are looking at it as, a, as more of a millstone around their neck than, than the way they're going to buy their way out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Sitting, sitting around holding it, waiting for it to bounce back, yeah. theoretically? Yeah, I think, I think you can sit around and hold it if you want for a small amount of it because, you know, how much you're going to lose in the next year over what you've already lost. But, uh, but I certainly, um, certainly wouldn't buy it, and, and it's a bad investment. I guess the last thing I want to touch on real quickly is people are underestimating the economic consequences of climate change. Even in advanced countries like the U.S., where the economic consequences are leaving people with inability to um, to, to, to actually get to work on time. I mean, people in Boston don't might not be making the connection, but the reason there's so much snow is because there's about 6 to 7% more moisture in the air because of global warming. Right? So all that moisture goes up in the air. It's got to come down somewhere. And it comes down when two fronts collide, and it comes down with a boom. So in the West, we're being subjected to droughts punctuated by three-day floods, punctuated by more drought. And that's been going on all over the southwest of the United States. In the, in the Northeast, they've been hit with uh, massive amounts of snow that shouldn't be falling at this level in this month, anywhere near this volume. And uh, that will continue because of the, because of the way that the, um, the climate is deteriorating. And if that snow weren't falling in Boston, it would be a torrent of rain somewhere else because that moisture has got to come down. Now, that moisture is only going up as a percentage of a- atmosphere, which means that there's going to be more adjusting individual houses have to do. Uh, people are going to be buying generators. People are going to be buying uh, battery packs to protect themselves so that they can live off their photovoltaic when the, when the power goes down for some period of time. I, I personally think um, there's a place for both. If you think that the worst outage you're going to have is a six-hour outage, there's a case to be made for batteries. If you think you could have an outage for days and days, which has happened now several times up in the Northeast, a better case for, for generators. But I think that the, the reality is that people are going to have to start seeing that the infrastructure, which we've relied on as invincible, no longer is invincible. Yeah. Here in yeah. Santa Barbara, we're a very affluent community. We've had four blackouts already. So people yeah. are getting used to the fact, wait a minute, something's not reliable. And, and the water infrastructure isn't adequate anymore. The water infrastructure is not adequate because, again, it can't deal with the, the, the monsoon-like effect of a, of a flash flood because it runs off. And at the same time, it can't deal with the drought aspects of what goes on between monsoon. Uh, but it's a far bigger problem in, in the developing world where it's radically destabilizing agricultural patterns. Uh, and, and you're going to see, just as we did in Syria, where it was a, a drought that triggered the original uh, villages from rising up against Assad, you're going to see more destabilization, which is all the more reason why if local people are willing to fight to save their villages from the hands of tyrants in the face of destabilization, I think we have to help them because they are the first line and perhaps the only line of defense against those tyrants who will get progressively more 
um, aggressive, you know, and, and I don't want to stop with just Hitler analogy. I mean, you can make a case that Genghis Khan was the ultimate warlord. You can make the case that Attila the Hunter took Rome in 600 was a warlord. You can make the case that all the Viking chiefs were warlords. Uh, every Goth, Ostergoth, Visigoth, Goth back in the Middle Ages were all warlords. So we've, we've been down this path before when, when society gets unstable, in that case at the end of the Roman Empire, and I think that we need to be absolutely vigilant to the fact that if indigenous populations don't defend themselves, we're going to have a bigger and bigger breakout of this type of warlord activity over larger and larger land masses. Yeah, I think there's a real economic question, too, in terms of stabilizing populations, right? Because the ones that get the most destabilized are the ones that have been extracted the most. You know, you're looking at Nigeria, the, de the depth of corruption when they have huge resources that are all just flowing out of the country. And uh, the, the, the resentment that that breeds... By the way, they just postponed the election. So I did. Good luck. They just he postponed his election. Yeah, I, I mean, Nigeria is so corrupt. It has been for so long. And, you know, i got to blame Michelle for this, too, because Shell permitted and encouraged the corruption. And they knew how much right. of their oil was being stolen. But that was the price of doing business in Nigeria. So they went along with it. I think there's a responsibility Western companies have, which they don't meet often, to really try to funnel the money that they pay for the resources they extract somehow back to the people. Mm -hmm. And when you know you have kleptomaniacs running these countries, you've got to be saying as a Western country, you know what, it's just not right. And yet the greed, in the case of Shell, it was like, well, gee, if we don't let them do this, then we won't get the oil for us. So, okay, it's a price of playing the business game. And I think that's a, a very short-sighted uh, behavior pattern. I think that uh, the future belongs to the companies who are willing to innovate and be responsible and attract workforces that are caring individuals who want to be proud of what they do all day and not just take home a paycheck. I think we're getting to the point, and I think the millennials will help us get there, of the end of what I call corporate schizophrenia, where you, ha you thought you were one person at work, but you had to be somebody different at home or on Sunday. Uh, I'm impressed that one of the six people who opposed the Abu Ghraib situation in Iraq was a military guy who had this awakening at a baptismal at his church when he realized if all people are created with this human dignity, how could he be part of a system that was destroying human dignity? It was the American torture program. Mm -hmm. now, of course, he lost his job in the military for saying that. But he was, he, he was applying a deeper value set. And, and I guess I'll end on this point, which is, it's time for business to become value-centric. That value for some companies might be taking care of their employees. It might be high integrity for their customers. It might be protecting the supply chain of their suppliers. But if you don't come at business today with values first, my suspicion is you will not end up as successful. The days of being an extractive robber baron are coming to an end. Uh, the Koch brothers in some ways, probably represent the end of that era that started with the railroad tycoons of the 1800s. And I think that what you're going to see is those robber barons are going to increasingly be perceived as people for whom it's really no fun to work in their organizations. And the best people, according to John Nesbitt, will always go to the companies which have the most enlightened policies. You'd never try to run Silicon Valley with Koch brother values. And that's the economic engine. People aren't trying to run the new biotech industries in San Diego like Koch Brother Industries. Koch Brothers are a bunch of 
fossil fuel people, right? And plastics guys, which are from fossil fuel. And so they're the end of that era of extractive, no conscience, we don't care. It's, it's the, the guys that own coal mines that were literally the wet, you know, miners die from black lung or from cave-ins. That, that era, I think, is coming to an end, one way or the other. Uh, just unfortunate that the political power that those industries and individuals control is still so great. Yeah, that's a that's an uplifting note of sorts, and it's going to continue to be an adventure and exciting time to watch, as well as a rife with problems and, and continued crises. But on that note, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, please come to our website, in between shows at worldbusiness.org, to connect with us. And tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link.